We return to our discussion about crack cocaine use rates versus incarceration rates of African Americans. According to Mark Maurer in the Sentencing Project, in a piece written on July 5th, 2006, the disparity on drug cocaine sentencing, more than 80% of the defendants prosecuted for crack offenses were African American, despite the fact that two-thirds of crack users were white or Hispanic. Meanwhile, according to the Stanford report, of May 25, 2005, five years into the 21st century, a third of black male high school dropouts aged 22 to 30 were in prison. A third, by the year 2000, were in prison or jail. In contrast, only 3.3% of white male high school dropouts of the same age were behind bars. That was a t 10 times higher incarceration rates for the same type of educational profile, black male versus white male, in the United States in the 21st century, 2004. It also should be noted that we incarcerate at an incredible level here in the United States compared to the rest of the world. We have less than 5% of the world's population, yet the United States in 2004 had over 2.2 million people incarcerated, which made up 24.4% of the 9 million persons that were incarcerated throughout the world. Again, this is 21st century statistics. Also, it's important to see the prejudicial profile of the criminal justice system by the profile, the educational profile of the groups that are incarcerated at the highest rates. And it's important to understand that 68% of state prison inmates in 1997 had not completed high school. Across all racial groups, prisoners are from the poorest sectors of society. 72% of prison inmates and 60% of jail inmates have not completed high school. Many are illiterate. This is information sourced from the Bureau of Justice Statistics in 1987. But there's probably no more shocking indicator of the systemic racist nature of our criminal justice system than in 2004, the incarceration rates for blacks in the United States was some 5.8 times higher than that of 1993 apartheid South Africa that if you look at the number of blacks per 100,000, the 5.8 times higher rate becomes evident. And when you get closer to today, from slavery to Jim Crow, these criminal justice system manifestations of systemic racism still prevail. Black men are 2.5 times more likely than white men to be killed by police, according to the uh, August 2019 research from Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I think the basis of racism is the complete disregard of our Constitution that everyone has the right to success and the value of one life is no greater than the value of another life. In fact, in reality, blacks clearly are second-class citizens in the United States. The way we know that is by the value of life that's attributed to them. When you look at sentencing profiles for blacks versus whites being killed in the United States, and when you look at sentencing outcomes for blacks versus whites that are convicted of the same crime and the gross disparities within sentencing profiles, does one life have a greater value than another? The taking of a black life, even by another black, was one-tenth as likely to be punished by death as the taking of a white one. Yet a black who took a white life was five times as likely to receive the death penalty as a white committing the same offense. This is by an article cited in the LA Times in January 8th of 1984 called Gray Areas and Colorblind Justice. 
Along the same lines, there was a Dallas piece that strikes closer to home since we're here in Texas. But in 1988, there was an article by Ray Herndon of the Dallas Times-Herald called Race Tilts the Scales of Justice of August 19, 1990. And it was a front page article reflecting the outcomes of a study of 1988 in which cases that were discovered in Dallas County, the criminal justice system more severely punishes killers and rapists whose victims are white than those that are black or Hispanic. And the rape of a white woman received a median term of 10 years, while if the victim was Hispanic, the median prison term was five years, and it was two years if the victim was black. So clearly, you can see that this is not an interpretation or subjective opinion that white lives are more important than black lives, and it really does substantiate the saying that black lives matter. So although this is one factor in modern-day discrimination, there are a number of others that we wanted to conclude this segment with. One of the great rationalizations that distract us from the real problem were claims by so many people that blacks needed to do more for themselves. That was the main problem. And there's no doubt that personal responsibility is something that cannot be compromised. But systemic racism means no matter how hard you try, the forces of the culture itself are powerfully loaded against you. One of the rationalizations often used by liberals and conservatives, and one espoused by President Obama as well, had to do with this issue of blacks taking greater initiative and getting educated and getting a better education. But systemic racism means that even if you do get better educated, you still lack advantages over those that are similarly educated. For example, is education the pathway to wealth equality? In 2015, President Obama's last year in office, black families whose heads of households graduated from college had about 33% less wealth than white families whose heads dropped out of high school. This is from work and studies done by William Darity and Derek Hamilton. Umbrellas Don't Make It Rain, Why Studying and Working Hard Isn't Enough for Black Americans, published in April of 2015. Derek Hamilton was part of another group that wrote a piece, 10 Solutions to Bridge, the Racial Wealth Divide, in April of 2019. And what they found was that, quote, at every education level, blacks are two times more likely to be unemployed compared to their similarly educated white peers. This is 21st century. When we turn to another form of modern-day discrimination, the issue of environmental racism is instructive. Environmental racial inequality is not the product of income inequality that many people have sometimes claimed. A 2008 study found that black, white, and Hispanic households with similar incomes live in neighborhoods of dissimilar environmental quality, that the association between neighborhoods and household income levels and neighborhood hazard levels varies according to neighborhood and household racial composition rather than just economic composition. These findings contradicted claims that the significance of race has declined in the modern industrial period and demonstrate that environmental racial inequality is not the product of racial income inequality. This is a piece, Race, Income, and Environmental Inequality in the United States by NIH researchers Liam Downey and Brian Hawkins, and it was a 2008, December 1 research publication. Basically, over 40 years of research has outlined patterns of environmental injustices 
where black and brown communities bear the brunt of environmental degradation or pollution. 14 of Houston's 17 industrial waste sites, accounting for over 80% of the city's waste tonnage, were situated in black neighborhoods, though only 25% of Houston's population was black. This was a 2021 publication, The Origins of Environmental Justice and Why It's Finally Getting the Attention It Deserves. It's a National Geographic piece. And connected to this environmental racism is the redlining policy uh, that codified segregation in the 1930s. It was created in 1933 to assist homeowners as part of the New Deal. The Homeowners Loan Corporation created maps of over 200 U.S. cities to grade neighborhoods on their credit worthiness. So black and immigrant areas received a worse grade and were shaded red, a policy known as redlining. And of course, the worst grade means a higher risk and therefore higher interest rates to get a home. And decades of redlining and other discriminatory practices reshaped urban landscapes in Minneapolis and elsewhere, leaving some areas some 10 degrees hotter than others. In other words, by the absence of planting trees and vegetation, geographical areas that had great similarities had much different temperatures. These redlined areas had worse urban heat because of less trees and vegetation. A 2020 study found that more than 100 American cities, neighborhoods that were redlined in the 1930s, deliberately discriminated against on racial grounds in home loans and other economic support are today on average 4.7 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than an unrenlined neighborhood in the same city. This is cited by the effects of historical housing policies on resident exposure to intra-urban heat, a study of 108 U.S. urban areas that was published in January 13, 2020 in the Climate Periodical. And then finally, if you look at COVID, even here in Austin, Texas, in Austin, Blacks and Latinx are most at risk of contracting COVID-19 and facing serious complications from their infection. This was a piece written in 2020, Why Racial Equity Matters, In the COVID-19 pandemic, the city of Austin Equity Office wrote this piece. They cited that Austin had eight times an overrepresentation in black people experiencing homelessness. Meanwhile, another 2020 publication, an NPR affiliate in Chicago, WBEZ, in an article entitled, In Chicago, 70% of COVID-19 Deaths Are Black by Elliot Ramos and Maria Ines Zamudia, an April 5th, 2020 piece. In Chicago, the population is 30% black, but 70% of the deaths from COVID have been black people. In Milwaukee, the population is 26% black, but black people account for half of all infections and 81% of deaths. In the state of Michigan, the population is 14% black, but infections are 35% black and 41% of deaths. And what COVID did is it revealed the systemic racist nature of our country and its healthcare system uh, and the nature of the employment and the living conditions that African-Americans have relative to whites. Blacks were more likely to be key workers, so they were more likely to come into contact with infected people than their peers in richer areas. They were less likely, perhaps, to have been able to work from home that many white peers had that option granted. They were more likely to have to rely on public transportation than people in richer areas and thus become into contact with infectious people. 
and they were more likely to be unable to afford grocery home delivery services, again, increasing interpersonal contacts. And then they were deprived areas that tend to have populations that are greater percentage of African-Americans have greater population densities than richer areas. So all of these factors created conditions, along with others, that created the very high rates of COVID morbidity for African-Americans relative to, to Anglos. So the focus of this show was to show that racism in the United States of America has assumed different methods in order to subjugate African-Americans throughout our short history. And even well into the 21st century, there are a number of methods that continue to disenfranchise African-Americans that we have discussed since the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Wanted to end the show with just two more indications of modern day discrimination. One has to do with housing discrimination. And housing discrimination includes, but it's not limited to subprime lending rates. We've already talked about redlining, but in an article written by Amanda Colson Hurley, The Problem of Resegregation in Suburbia, published by City Lab back on February 15, 2016, well into the 21st century, she documents that because of their costs and risky nature, subprime loans are more likely to result in foreclosures, which have been disproportionately located in low-income and predominantly black neighborhoods. Quote, a black family that earns $157,000 per year is less likely to qualify for a prime loan than is a white family earning $40,000 per year, which means that white families can borrow heavily at favorable rates, while black families are far less likely to receive a safe, fair loan product. The bottom line is home ownership, one of the greatest wealth-generating investments you can make, and here systemic racism again rears its ugly head. And finally, to conclude the show, returning to the incarceration issue, in an article, Black Men Survive Longer in Prison Than Out, it's by Geneva Pittman. It was published in the Health Magazine back in July 14th in 2011. And basically, the quality of life indicator, Black Men Survive Longer in Prison Than Out of Prison, was an outcome of a study that was published in the Annals of Epidemiology. The study involved some 100,000 men between the age of 20 and 79 who were held in a North Carolina prison between the years of 1995 and 2005. 60% of them were black. The study was done on North Carolina inmates, and it was called Black Men Survived Longer in Prison Than Out of Prison, and it was a study that showed that black men were half as likely to die at any given time if they're in prison than if they are not in prison. Think about that, that the life quality for African-American blacks in this country is such that African-American men will have a longer life expectancy if they're incarcerated their whole life than if they are free to pursue their dreams. This pattern did not hold up for imprisoned white men who are slightly more likely to die in prison than outside, according to the 2011 findings. Such is the nature of systemic racism. We end the show tonight with an important update on the unfolding events in the Ukraine and the U.S. media coverage of the pending war conflict and apparently Russia's gearing up for a major offensive in the southeast of Ukraine. Again, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. We wanted to give you an update on the unfolding events in the Russia-Ukraine environment there. As of Saturday, April the 16th, 2022, as we speak. And we are blessed to have with us Mike Whitney, investigative reporter, has been writing quite a number of articles on the subject. We've had him on many times in the past due to his expertise in these geopolitical arenas. 
And Mike, I guess what I'm really interested in you updating our listeners to in your perception, can you give us a, an up-to-date status of the Russian-Ukraine military conflict? Well, thank you for having me, Pedro. And, uh, you know, I've done a number of interviews with people who are more knowledgeable about the topic than myself and who have contacts on the ground over there. And uh, Marco Marjanovic, who I just did a, an interview with, would split the Russian offensive into two parts. And the first part of that was the first five weeks, which was more of a political psyops operation surrounding cities that really had very little effect on the military status of the Ukrainian army, even though they have taken out their, their air force and, uh, you know, munitions factories and uh, different uh, depots, you know, uh, train depots, et cetera. They've had very little impact on the military itself, although they have taken over Mariupol and a number of smaller cities along the southern corridor. But now we're getting preparing for the big military event, which is a cauldron that is in southeastern Ukraine, which contains between 50 and 60,000 Ukrainian combat troops. And they have been encircled by the Russian forces. And this is going to be the biggest World War II type battle that we've seen in over 75 years. And this is going to be um, an enormous conflagration, but we don't exactly know how long it's going to take the Russian military to get its forces in place so they can carry off the offensive. But sometime in the next two weeks that will begin. And you know it'll begin with the artillery pounding the area. And this will be the decisive battle of the war. So when you say that these 50,000 or so forces of the Ukraine army are encircled, does that mean that they are cut off from getting resupplied by Kiev and all of the armaments and all of the military equipment that's being brought into the country through the NATO countries? Yes, that's exactly what it means. You know, surprisingly, well, well first of all, the Russian troops that the 40,000 Russian troops that surrounded Kiev, which is in the north, were basically there to as a feint and to prevent the Ukrainians from deploying additional troops down to this encircled area. Although, you know, the Russians have surprisingly not taken action against, you know, the six different train lines that, that go over the main river, the Dnieper, in the central area of Ukraine. So what I'm saying is that Putin has tried to such a great degree not to damage the infrastructure of the, of the country that he has left some of these corridors open, but they're not being used. And they have blown up a few of the main depots, one of the, the main train, uh, train depot in uh, Krematorsk. Maybe this is too technical for your uh, listeners. I don't know. But they're taking a much more conventional military strategy now in uh, breaking supply lines and making it impossible for people to resupply these troops that are now located in that area. So to answer your question shortly, yes, it, it, they are cut off. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that you're not clear and nobody's clear as to when this offensive will start, but it'll only start once Putin feels that the supply lines and the support for the Russian troops is sufficient for the operation. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. They're moving in uh, large convoys from the east. And some of the troops that uh, were moving from the Kiev actually had to go out through Belarus and around the country to gain access uh, most easily from the east, from the Russian side. So uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. No one knows the exact date when this will, when this will happen. But at the same time, you remember that uh, you've probably heard that they're moving 
just a tremendous amount of uh, lethal weaponry from Germany, from Slovakia, from uh, the United States, from all the NATO countries are, I mean, there's 300 tanks that are uh, approaching the border right now uh, from Poland as well. And uh, they're sending in uh, heavy artillery pieces and anti-aircraft artillery and, uh, you know, all kinds of small weaponry, et cetera. So the United, the United States, which has made no effort, zero effort to even talk diplomatically to the Russian side is now basically pouring gas on the on the fire. And the general consensus is that they want to prolong this as long as possible, because the ultimate goal is to bleed Russia dry and to get them involved in a quagmire type event that drains their resources and weakens their government. And of course, when the body bags start coming back to Russia, then that will cause political instability, which they hope will lead to regime change. Let me ask you this, Mike. It seems like when we look at the uh, history of U.S. foreign policy, that what, what we find is a clear history of deceit between what our government and its spokespeople are saying and really what is happening on the ground. I mean, we, we learned that clearly from the uh, Pentagon Papers in Vietnam. We learned it from the Afghan Papers in Afghanistan. Certainly our experience in Iraq and Libya and Syria are the same. And here we're getting pummeled from morning to night coverage of, of all these civilian casualties and those types of things in the Ukraine. You've indicated, and from my research too, it seems like the approach that Russia had in this invasion was to try to keep it as military as possible and not go after civilian infrastructure, unlike we did in, you know, in Iraq and in these other countries and such. But can you, uh, from your perspective, do you, get a, do you have a feel for the approach to civilian casualties of trying to minimize them or not that the Russian invasion has exhibited so far? And what do you see going into the future? Well, I'm very sympathetic to, uh, from a humanitarian point of view, to what Putin is trying to achieve. Because like you said, I mean, the gas is still flowing into Ukraine from Russia. The lights are still on, the power, the water sources, all these things are still operable. Yes, you should see these horrific pictures of downtown, this town or that town. But these are very much in the minority where the, the, the main fighting was going on. But they are trying to spare as much of this uh, civilian infrastructure and civilian deaths as possible. You know as well as I do when you see pictures of Fallujah or when you read about examples of Raqqa or Mosul or any of these places, the U.S. basically encircled them, bombed the heck out of them, killed you know tons of civilians and destroyed the infrastructure for the next 10 or 15 years. And they, the gloves came off immediately and it was a, a disaster, a humanitarian disaster. They're trying to avoid that. But what you see is that a lot of people who are supportive of the Russian effort uh, are now getting very critical because they, th they think that these long delays are really costing them as far as the war effort. And at the same time, NATO and the United States are pumping these weapons, which brings into question the Russia's ability to end this operation anytime soon. So they're urging Russia to take steps that doesn't keep one hand tied behind their back. So it's kind of ironic that the people who sound anti-war uh, so many times before are saying you need to take a stronger hand in this particular situation so that this can, thing can end quickly mm -hmm. and you can get the outcome that you seek. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting, the whole approach. It's also interesting that this propaganda war is a very one-sided war, in our country at least. Overwhelmingly, we're getting 
people like President Joe Biden calling it genocide. And here you are describing it in independent sources. When you compare U.S. incursions to this Russian incursion, clearly indicate that there is, relatively speaking, a much more humanitarian approach to war, so to speak. Yet we're being bombarded by this uh, information that Putin is a war criminal, that there's a genocide going on. And even people within the NATO countries are kind of contradicting Biden's language in that regard. But what does the language tell you? I mean, you got to understand that Biden is not putting those words on the piece of paper himself. Someone else is telling him to say those things, deliver the, you know, calling Putin a butcher and a war criminal, and particularly genocide, because there's no way of escalating beyond the genocide charge. I mean, that is the top rung of the escalation, rhetorical escalation uh, charge you can make. And it just makes it sound like the United States is preparing for some involvement of its own. When you make a charge like that, it is basically paving the way for some military action. So Mm -hmm. I would say that really has me concerned quite a bit. Very good. Well, Mike, thank you for that update. And uh, I want to just with the last minute or two that we have with you, if people want to access some of your ongoing written coverage uh, and written work, where can they access your articles? Well, I usually post my articles first on the UNS Review website and at Global Research. So that's uh, uns.com and globalresearch.ca.com. So either one of those locations, you know, you can find me. And I would pay close attention to what's going on the ground over there now because uh, the situation is, you know, events are moving very quickly. And uh, the outcome of this thing is really I would say very much in doubt now. We don't know what's going to happen or how long it's going to go on. So it's worth paying attention to. Right. Well, we will stay in contact with you. And thank you for the update today. Thank you, Pedro. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety. Breaks all his own